Welcome back to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. And if you have been listening to our first number of episodes, thanks for coming back. If you enjoy what you hear today, I'd like to invite you to take just a second and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and consider sharing this episode on social media. That'll help us continue to grow our audience and continue to be able to produce this show and have fun doing it. So if you find value in what we're talking about, help us out and um, offer a share or a review, and we would greatly appreciate it. Today we're going to be talking to Henry Whitfield. Henry is an ACBS peer-reviewed ACT trainer, a certified traumatic incident reduction trainer, and a trauma specialist. He has 20 years experience as a cognitive behavioral therapist, is a meta-learning blogger, and is now a visiting research fellow at Regent's School of Psychotherapy and Psychology, Regent's University London, where he studies psychedelic therapy process. Henry also has been a part of conducting and I think doing himself psychedelic retreats uh, in the Netherlands with a specific contextual behavioral science approach. Uh, We'll get into that with him today, as well as some other topics. So enjoy the interview, and thanks for tuning in. Hi, Henry. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Nate? Nice to see you again. Good. Thank you. Briefly, once before. Just very briefly, yes. One of the but, ACT conferences, maybe. Yeah. Well, it's good to, to have you here today. Um, thank you for agreeing to come on. Um, we uh, will get to the meat of it, I'm sure, uh, in a bit. We're, Brian and I know are both really excited to talk to you about the retreats you've been doing. Um, but before we get into that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your background in the field of psychology generally, and just kind of like how you wove your way into um, doing psychedelic retreats. Sure, yeah, I guess it's a pretty long story, but I'll try and get to the point. I mean, I was one of those, I remember hypnotizing people at school when I was about 14. I was always so fascinated by the mind and how can we understand it or influence it or work with it. Then, yeah, I ended up doing my master's in cognitive behavioral therapy, I think back in 2005. And um, I was always very interested in personal growth. Um, At the time when I started, I think it was many of the listeners who I believe therapists will be familiar with the the life pattern of seeking some kind of help. You know, we're all human and it's, it's nice to have some kind of help with our psychological issues and then maybe making a progression into being a therapist as well. Um, for me, I yeah, I was probably not so, so aware of my own issues at the time. And so I was I kind of came of it came at it from a point of view of how you know human human potential or even you know spiritual kind of growth, that kind of thing. And uh, I came across an approach for trauma called traumatic incident reduction which is, um, has some things in common with EMDR. It's a very kind of repetitive 
disciplined protocol for facing traumatic incidents. So that's kind of where my career, be career began. I've set up and supervised a project um, in a couple, yeah, a couple of uh, mental health charities actually, or um, yeah, actually only one of, them, one of them was a mental health charity, but offering trauma therapy to victims of crime, basically um, in gun crime hotspots in London. Then um, I ended up, I came across acceptance and commitment therapy, which I thought was a fantastic way to get beyond the limits of person-centeredness. That was something, that's something that's interested me for a long time. You know, person, being person-centered, I think it's very important and very useful, very useful skill for therapists to have. But of course it has its limits. And I was so impressed with how in acceptance and commitment therapy, you could steer someone straight back into what they were avoiding. Um, you know, thinking of things in terms of willingness, just, the, just looking at our experience through the lens of what am I not willing to experience? And what is it about that? And what happens when I avoid experiencing that? That was just, I, um, I just thought that was a very, and I still think that's a very powerful, very important way to look at our experience. So then, yeah, I, um, I think around 2008, I was already running and co-facilitating um, co and training people in acceptance and commitment therapy. And a few years after that, I qualified as an, a peer-reviewed ACT trainer with the ACBS, Association of Contextual Behavioral Science. And, and so, yeah, for many years, I've been training therapists and I just always, and um, supervising as well. I've always just loved the challenge of a difficult case and thinking how we can bring together all these, you know, there's, there's so many tools out there in the therapeutic world to bring together. And it's another thing I love about ACT is that it's uh, had this mission or the ACBS has had this mission to break out of brands of therapy and different camps and to try and um, understand things in terms of process. So that always really excited me about ACT. And then, um, yeah, I ended up, I ended up um, getting involved in psychedelic uh, research um, or I guess first I, you know, I was, you know, because simply, simply mainly because acceptance and commitment therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy has been considered really helpful for psychedelics by quite a few different universities. I think it's uh, Jeff Gus of NYU that was has been advocating for it for, for a while, and then yeah, universities like that were um, happy to have ACT people with lots of experience in ACT to. And then give some bits of input. So that's how I ended up coming across the, the research world. And yeah, then the retreats were just a way to continue to explore this integration of ACT and psychedelics, which was something that I just love to integrate different subjects and see how that we can align them so that things with multiple parts can function in harmony together. That's something that I find very interesting. It kind of appeals to my inner geek. So that's basically how I ended up where I am now. And so yeah, now I'm working with uh, Regents University as a visiting research fellow. So we've been collecting a lot of data about how people integrate psychedelic experiences and how they prepare. And so yeah, that's kind of how I, how I got to where I am now. We have all of us a uh, common interest in uh, ACT 
and uh, psychedelics. You know, that was we have the the special interest group within ACBS on psychedelics and ACT. I'm real curious how just to dive into what you do on the retreats and you know how you integrate ACT. What what was the sort of initial idea that you know was like ah I'm you know we can do this retreat and uh, I'm, to tell me a little bit about how that came to be and how you got started with that. I I guess personally I in um, places like Holland I attended uh, ayahuasca retreats. So ayahuasca, many of, I know you guys know, and many listeners will probably know that it's, uh, it's probably one of the most established forms of a psychedelic ceremony for healing. And um, just really attending such retreats, it just stood out to me so much how ACT could be helpful. Because like I already mentioned, actually, ACT has this big emphasis of leaning into what is difficult to face. And on the ayahuasca retreats, there were often quite a few people who were there saying, oh, I just felt, I just felt um, really uncomfortable and it was horrible. And I had this feeling I, did, I didn't like kind of things along those lines. So of course me, the, the uh, ACT therapist, <laughs> it's hard not to resist um, thinking, well, you know, talking about willingness, similar to how I was just describing it earlier. And so I thought, well, yeah, what um, would it be like if we had we could do retreats where there was act um, interwoven into the fabric of the preparation, the integration, even sometimes even during the actual dosing itself, people get stuck and they aren't willing to experience what's coming up and they don't really make uh, the progress that they would like to make. And even by the time the psychedelic um, that they've taken has worn off, they feel that that they weren't able to open up to the experience. Um, So that's one answer. Another answer is, of course, so many um, therapeutic traditions, not only ACT, so many therapeutic traditions talk about the importance of experiential learning. And so, yeah, the combination of I'm just in the, I was just looking at a paper about this just before we started the call, actually. There's already some really uh, good research that shows how the combination of mindfulness and psychedelics added together is a powerful one where they seem to enhance each other. And so it was, um, so I was just really curious to see how, you know, that could be uh, made most of and what was I going to say? Yeah, experiential learning. So um, my whole experience of going deeper, deeper into what I'm afraid to feel was a new level personally than it had been before I experienced things like an ayahuasca retreat. And it became increasingly clear, at least from my point of view, um, that we needed to go into our deepest fears and our deepest fears usually connect with um, who we think we are. So the whole stuff around shame seemed particularly important. And I'm sure you you guys know that in functional analytic uh, psychotherapy or FAP, um, another approach within the um, contextual behavioral science world, 
there's a lot we can do to help somebody feel ready to face certain you know, feelings about who they who they are. But, you know, shame, I think that really stands out about shame is it, it's a great example of something that blocks therapeutic process itself. And that we often feel like we don't want to feel it or talk about it because we think it's so bad that um, uh, it kind of you know, blocks the therapeutic process, process itself. So in, you know, in normal ACT training, as, as an ACT trainer, I was kind of trained and encouraged to, as, as an ACT student, I was trained and encouraged to be open, self-disclose about my own um, difficulties so that people, either clients or people in the workshop, or when I was the, you know, the participant in the workshop, we could all open up about who, you know, our deeper fears about our inadequacies. So um, that's definitely, that definitely became an important part of the, how the retreat is run. So offering, so the facilitators offering themselves like ACT, like the, the same way that ACT is trained, offering ourselves as equal, vulnerable human beings. That has, and, and in doing so, it kind of has the function of making it okay for other people to go deeper into what they're afraid they might, that their fears they might, might have about who they are or inadequacies that they might have. Yeah, that sounds very, very familiar and actish. And I'm trying to imagine, you know, setting, setting this up and, you know, doing a, a psychedelic retreat. And, you know, you, there's a world of infinite possibilities and formats here. You know, I mean, we have, sort of um, the um, paradigmatic, almost therapeutic ideal of this seems to be someone by themselves, you know, with their eyes closed or with uh, you know, an eye covering and music on a couch or something like that, which is, you know, simply one way among limitless options. Um, there's ceremonial use, like you experienced with the ayahuasca, you know, there's group settings, there's more individual. So, um, you know, and then you're, you're pulling from, the act retreats and, and, and things of that nature. And so I'm wondering how you put together your format and what that format looks like. Um, uh, discrete sessions, you know, how are they conducted and, you know, how many are there, how long is a retreat? So just the, the, the basic format and sort of how you decided on that format. Yeah. Big questions. Lots of questions. Um, where should I start? I think my initial vision for it was to have, uh, an extended retreat. So yeah, it's the retreat that the retreats that we've been doing that four and a half days long, and they have two uh, truffle psilocybin truffle ceremonies um, during which, of course, people are invited to go deep into their you know, fears and their, whatever their various uh, barriers that might be there in their lives. And uh, so, yeah, we, how do we prepare people? Perhaps that's a place to start. Of course, after you know, people, we have to screen people and, and talk to people beforehand and stuff like that. Um, but um, yeah, we send out lots of instructions in advance to have journaling exercises, to have, have people already, already start the process of writing about what is it that I'm, what do I long for, what's missing? what's difficult for me to try and start to touch that edge of where you don't normally go. So even at the, um, before the person attends the retreat, we're asking them to look at that and then we'll have a Zoom meeting to talk about that kind of stuff. 
as well. Then on the jumping to the actual retreats. Um, do you do that? I'm sorry, the Zoom meeting, do you do that with all of the participants together as a group on a Zoom? No, individually. Um, so the intention is to try and have a, 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 a gradual entering into what's, where it's difficult to go, increasing a person's awareness. So of course, a lot of, many people who attend are not familiar with things like willingness. So already making that part of the vocabulary of, oh, when is it that I'm not willing to experience a certain feeling, um, bringing into awareness that often the things that we avoid, we're not even aware of it a lot of the time. So how do we become more aware of that? Um, then in the actual retreats, yeah, there's um, quite an emphasis on self-concept work, or in the act world, we might call it self as con content or self as story. Just talking generally, I guess that's the kind of, I guess the idea was always to have that kind of entry. And then of course, I've had lots of help from, we, we, want, um, we wanted it um, to be, you know, I, I originally even wanted it to be um, kind of compatible with different worldviews. Um, of course, there's a great long, there are many shamanic traditions. I wanted it to be compatible with that, but also open to people of any belief system. So it doesn't require belief in either a materialist viewpoint on the world or a more spiritual, um, non-physical viewpoint on, on, on the universe. But that's another thing I love about you know, behavioral science, behaviorism, that whatever phenomenon or behaviors we're dealing with, we can still look at where those behaviors take us and if they're helpful or not. Um, so yeah, um, I had, uh, so it's been a, so how the retreat, there are many, many different parts how that retreat unfolds. It's, yeah, we've seen um, Pearson, who's a shamanic practitioner as well as psychotherapist, who, I, you know, together we put together the program to see how we could, you know, deliver this kind of retreat. And um, so there's quite a lot of, you now I was always really interested in, the, um, you know, this different experiences of self and self as content and, um, and yeah, Lucene has worked a lot with parts work um, which is, you know, used you guys who are also, I know, interested in psychedelics. You're probably familiar with things like internal family systems therapy, which has been used in, with, in the MDMA studies and stuff like that. So kind of what we've done both during the, the retreat and during the integration sessions afterwards is kind of expanding selfless content with parts work. So what is it you're in a, you know, having a, an inner critic, critical voices, which of course is normal in act as well, looking at critical voices that we have, but then expanding that into there might be a more kind of lonely, more de dejected childlike self that's more, feels more disempowered. So that kind of stuff, yeah, again, in my own personal experience, meeting those kind of more sad, lost, lonely parts of ourselves, you know, this, uh, bring, uh, Experiencing psychedelics myself uh, enabled me to connect more deeply with those parts of myself personally than I'd been able to before. So, I guess from, you know, from that made that made it more um, you know self, the way self as content and self as context has been uh, taught or applied in a lot of act circles. Very often, I felt it was kind of left to the side slightly, like all the other act processes of present moment, cognitive diffusion, you know, seeing thoughts just as thoughts, values, 
most act therapists, and it's been my job to train act therapists for a long time, about 12 years, I think now. And so, of course, it was my job to constantly review and look at how acts is done. And, and definitely the self stuff seemed to be neglected. I think it was used least. And experiencing psychedelics kind of made me want to do the reverse. I thought the self stuff is the deepest, it's the most, uh, it's, you know, it's a very important aspect of it. So... Yes, you know, I want to. I want to just echo that. You know, Brian and I have have talked about that. You know, in a previous podcast, and I think Brian shares this view with me, but I don't want to hesitate too much. But but it's a total agreement that self as context is really where it's at. You know, when when a lot of times in psychedelic space, you know, there's talk about ego dissolution, and um, that's sort of a ubiquitous phrase. And I, I tend to, in my mind, go straight to you know the the act you know, equivalent, you know, the, the idea of self as content versus self as context and psychedelics providing just this incredible opportunity to um, take that perspective about 30,000 feet high and look at one's self from an angle that you just do not have the opportunity to look at yourself from um, and to see different parts and to see um, with dispassion at some time, like just those different, all of those different aspects of oneself without attachment. Um, so I just wanted to, to pick up on that a little bit because I think that that that's a really lovely point you're making. And uh, I couldn't agree more that, that um, that aspect of psychedelics, I think is um, absolutely crucial and provides, I think the greatest opportunity that we have in psychedelic therapy to make a transformative difference. Mm, cool. Yeah, totally. Another way I kind of think about that stuff is I think deeper, I guess what psychedelics make kind of make perhaps deeper, more profound, more dramatic, even psychological change, personal change. Seems it seems to I see them like a turbocharger, like a it's like um it's like pressing the nitro button on your on in on your video game car. Somehow it just to my surprise because you know, I was very much a psychological thinker I was never I kind of didn't think so much in terms of psychopharmacology you know my bias was leading more towards the psychology side um so it was a real revelation to me to think that yes substances can be have a hugely beneficial effect and so I think of psychedelics a bit like mindfulness juice perhaps or or psychological flexibility juice maybe that's might be a better way you know it has some intensifying effect um i love um um groff's uh, statement a non-specific amplifier so it's this this uh, magnifying glass that intensifies whatever you're focusing on and you know that can be so helpful therapeutically but yeah coming back to the self point yeah i guess another thing that uh, i think about that is the deeper changes change who we are when I say who we are, I mean, you know, our experience of ourselves, how we see the world, therefore the behaviors that we do on a daily basis. So our experience of the character we're playing, if we're all playing a certain character, uh, yeah, so if, if you're, maybe I could even go as far as saying that if you don't have a sense of who you are changing, then maybe the changes are, tell me off if you think this is an overstatement, but, um, maybe the changes aren't as great as they could be. You know, I guess we, you know, as we human beings just de developmentally, we go through life, we, you know, who we are when we're 10 is different to who we are when we're 20. And that's, again, it's pretty sure we're gonna be a pretty different person maybe when we're 80. 
um, but yes, this arc of life, um, if you study, you know, it's, it's there if you study drama as well, or character development, kind of what makes the spice of life is when people change, I think. That seems to overlap with that a lot. So that's why the, um, in thinking about how to integrate psychedelics with an ACT model, um, I'm about to uh, publish a paper, hopefully, I'm about to submit a paper, I should say, on um, uh, psychological flexibility model adapted to cope with the extremes of psychedelics that range from, we know traumatic memories come up a lot during psychedelic um, therapeutic experiences, psychedelic experiences, and we know that at the other end of the scale, people have mystical experiences. For a long time, actually, I've, in terms of trying to integrate different subjects and think in a kind of more holistic way, I've often find, found it very helpful to think in terms of scales or spectrums. Um, so I thought, um, how about having a spectrum of cells as for more contracted, less psychological, like less psychologically flexible selves to expanded, perhaps more psychologically flexible selves. Of course, it's a it's an interesting point to debate. You know, what is psychological flexibility, and is it useful to see an expanded kind of um, mystical experience as an intense version of psychological flexibility? And there's different ways of looking at that and thinking about that. But um, yeah, sometimes the use of a scale, I think, can be helpful as a heuristic, it's just to bring things together, to, to see that, you know, to see things like from trauma to mystical experience as part of one thing, one kind of self, different parts of self. It's just a, way, a, a simple way of looking at it, I guess. I'm curious. You know, I want to, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Brian. I was going to ask Henry, um, given that for a lot of folks who are, um, going to be using psychedelics, there might be a lot of anxiety. You know, you're talking about being closed off, avoiding our fears, avoiding dealing with some of our, our difficult experiences. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like what, what you found has been most helpful in helping people open up to the psychedelic experience. Like, I think, you know, because psychedelic assisted therapy in general is so new, we're, we're just beginning to scratch the surface around what technologies are going to be the most helpful in, in maximizing benefit. So I agree with you, ACT seems such a, a perfect fit for, for introducing concepts such as willingness uh, or acceptance. But in terms of just speaking in more specifics, like in talking with retreat participants or meeting with them in Zoom sessions, what, what are the things you say or do that you feel are the most helpful in getting people to a place where they're going to be as open as possible to psychedelics? Good question. Again, I mean, I guess, talk, I, guess I, can, I can go back to the kind of structure or design of the retreat. One thing that we do is breath work. I mean, because we can come up, I like to come at one problem from multiple angles, because I think it can... You know, it's, it's like spokes of the wheel or something. You can, if you have multiple things holding the hub there, then uh, maybe that can be helpful. That's just kind of one metaphor, one way of looking at it. Um, so how can we optimize or align a retreat to help encourage that as helpfully as we can? And, you know, perhaps more than one way. So um, we still kind of start with um, even self as context meditations even, 
uh, shame becoming familiar with what is it that I don't want to feel, then if that comes up, then you're kind of prepared for, you know, you're, it's not such a surprise and you're less likely to think, oh, it's that horrible thing I don't want to deal with. So you kind of, you've done some preparation for it. Then, uh, yeah, there's in, you know, the psychedelic world, there's lots and uh, mindfulness informed practices in the world there's this big kind of differentiation that's made between head and heart and or being more in feeling versus being in your head um so things like the, the breath work is a way of just and even movement you know movement exercises how do you have a person be less in their head and more in direct experience we do you know yoga and meditation each morning so all these little bits and pieces can help support um, the setting for when the ingestion actually happens. Um, then, uh, of course, a lot of people, they can just, some, you know, people quite often, even without such so many elaborate preparations, can just be there and open up and they go and they feel what comes up and that's fine. But kind of the more geeky technician in me, I'm particularly interested in what happens when it's more complicated or the person's resistance to openness is uh, more tricky. There's a more fierce rejection of those, you know, those difficult feelings that um, I'm usually avoided. So, yeah, um, you've asked me a, a good question here. There's lots of different things I could say about it. Um, one that's one example that's on my mind right now is um, of a particular participant in the study, and you know I've just been in touch with him recently about you know uh, you know consent to you know double check. I like with participants in the study, I always like to double check you know, before anything is, even though they've already signed consent forms, of course. I just want to double check that they're totally happy or things are anonymized to their satisfaction. So this is really fresh in my mind. Um, I was talking just uh, yesterday, I, um, I was in communication with somebody who found it very difficult to open up. Um, somebody who, um, yeah, the classic fear of fear it's not going to work, fear it's not good enough, having thoughts like, even though I've traveled all this distance and I'm here for the psychedelics and I've read all about psychedelics and I've read someone who with a very strong mind, you might say, um, he read all the papers on psychedelics and knew, you know, a lot of that, you know, similar to you guys like us who you know, read all these papers and stuff, all this knowledge there about psychedelics on the head level. And yeah, of course, well, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's a fear of, in spite of doing all this preparation and reading all about psychedelics and making all this effort, maybe it's not going to work, it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And someone with that kind of, um, a more kind of fierce, even, maybe even say kind of obsessive, you know, that very, very fierce kind of more obsessive kind of mind that locks things down in this very, very rigid way. And when you can, you know, as a therapist, you can kind of feel the quality of that kind of rigidity and how the person relates and so that they were they're, they're a nice example of when it's not so easy because of course a lot of people can just take a psychedelic and open up and it's fine um so um yeah um what 
we did what I I guess what I did um, with him was um, he was clearly really stuck on something. So it's basically what in acceptance and commitment therapy we call it a cognitive diffusion kind of intervention during the actual retreat where he was locked into a very difficult place, not being able to go with what was coming up, um, completely trapped. If this, if, you know, com- completely trapped in a loop of it's not going to work, it's not going to work. I think, yeah, two other facilitators had tried things and his, his blocking, you know, that's the thing with more tricky psych, you know, psychotherapeutic cases, isn't it? The person's behaviors block the therapeutic process itself. That's the way I like to sum that up. So um, whatever people tried, he would say, oh, no, no, but no, that can't work for me. That can't work for me. I know, you know I'm, he'd already read all the books on acts. So anyth- anything that sounded like acts, so I already know that and that doesn't work for me. <laughs> so it was that kind of situation. Um, so I thought, hmm, how are we going to break through this one then? Um, and one of my um, favorite simple techniques that I've learned from all these, it's been 20 years since I've been a therapist and, and something that goes always, it's that very much a, it's a cognitive diffusion. I guess it was basically, with, yeah, from an act behavioral point of view, you could probably call it Tichner technique technique, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, where you have somebody repeat something that is difficult for them, like a difficult thought, apart from in, with all these barriers and blocks, it was difficult to narrow down what is it he's struggling with. And so I kind of fished around a bit and, um, and yeah, it was the, the total classic thing of believing that you're defective or he even used a, 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 a word I guess I shouldn't repeat on a podcast um, but a, a, regarding his own worth so let's say we boiled it down to I'm total I'm totally useless or I'm totally totally defective so it's, it's it emerged it, we could I could you know we, I think we could see that that was he was stuck on that and all his behaviors were revolving around that. So none of these act interventions could work, even though he'd read all the books, because um, he knew he was just defective and it couldn't work for him. So um, I asked that's, him that's, to- um, Oh, I'm sorry, I wanted to clarify um, that this was happening during a session. So he was under the influence of psilocybin while you were doing this intervention. Okay, neat. Yeah. Um, So, and he's there very troubled that he's just not going to get any benefit at all. And he's very, very stuck on that. Um, So anyway, to try and cut a long story short, I guess I've already given you a rather long version, but... um, I love the simplicity of repetition. So by turning an exercise, that's why I like this kind of techno kind of technique. I had him repeat something along the lines of, I am defective. I'm, I'm totally defective. I'm totally defective. I'm totally defective. And initially it was difficult to get that to happen because there were so many barriers saying, no matter what you do, it's never ever gonna help because I know it can't ever help. Nothing in, in the universe can help me, not even a psychedelic not even a nicely run psychedelic uh, retreat was the story. And then just having him repeat 
repeat that. He had went into more and more deeply into the emotion and um and then yeah, after that he was able to go on his journey. So we, that, it was kind of probably took about 20 minutes and then we could just leave him in the usual um, psychedelic ceremony style to just allow his journey to unfold. But somehow it uh, broke him through. So that's, yes, that's one specific example of an, an act, cognitive diffusion uh, exercise. That's, breaking that's, that's, a, barrier. that's a, that's a wonderful uh, example. And I think a lot of times the, um, the conversation about using theory, using ACT in particular, um, to assist psychedelic assisted psychotherapy has a lot to do with the preparation and integration. So I really love hearing an example of how you used what is basically a, just a classic ACT psychotherapeutic intervention, just a classic, I mean, that's something that would be used in psychotherapists by an ACT therapist regularly. And to actually bring that into the experience itself, not, not in integrating it, not in preparing for it, but during the session and, and to see basically it just amplified the results of, of what, you know, a therapist might do in their office uh, during a regular session. Um, so that, that's really neat to hear. And I, I wonder to sort of piggyback on that. I'm just really imagining as you're describing this experience of this person being really stuck and, and him being a very heady person. Um, I want to notice in this, you know, maybe not about this individual but more generally, you know, what do you notice about, because I think one of the things that I've always noticed about psychedelics is simply how physical they are. You know, there it is a physically embodied experience from head to toe. Um, you know, there's this uh, neat perceptual stuff. There's this heady stuff and, and thought but that that sort of breaks down, but you know uh, it's an overwhelmingly physical uh, experience. And I wonder how you see the act processes, if you do, play out physically and, and what sort of physical interventions do you imagine or have seen um, could be useful in sort of short-circuiting some of those barriers that you're describing, some of those habitual barriers of, of uh, you know, kind of mental self-sabotage that we do all the time. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I very much agree. Um, um, it kind of about the importance of physical feeling, being in feeling, being less in the head, this kind of um, dichotomy of, am I in my head? Am I in my body? Um, and yeah, another thing that's very, I definitely can thank the ACT world for teaching me is what we, we tend to call, I think I believe the technical term is functional analysis. So you can do, so over, this is how ACT overlaps with body work. So I think in normal body psychotherapy, I don't know very much about body psychotherapy, body psychotherapy but um, I've read a little bit about it. And I believe what you do in some body psychotherapy is, well, from the ACT, from the CBS, contextual behavioral science point of view, we would call it functional analysis or of the bodily movements or bodily tensions. So for example, if I'm, all hunched over like this, then why am I, um, in, in my hunching, what's that about? What, am I hoping to not feel something when I hunch like that? Um, so yeah, like you were saying, during a psychedelic experience, there can be um, very bodily feelings that a person, perhaps they don't wanna feel those bodily feelings or they're habituated in their normal life to not feel those bodily feelings yeah, of course, 
Yeah, you guys both are both therapists too, so I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners too are aware that some people manage to um, somehow train themselves through, I guess, years of development to not really feel much in their bodies at all. Um, it's harder for them to do something like a body scan. Um, that some people, you know, we, well, all of us to some degree, we can put we put a barrier to feeling what's going on in our bodies some of the time. So, um, yeah, a common thing that uh, yeah can happen in psychedelic ceremonies is very often a kind of difficult feeling of it's often sickliness. Not only in ayahuasca where you know vomiting or purging is more normal, but also with with mushrooms. A person, a person can quite often feel a, a heavy feeling in the kind of stomach area. It does seem to be a bit of a theme. Um, and a kind of tension down there, sometimes it, yes, it does seem to point to uh, often something that a person might be ashamed of or something they really, really, really don't want to feel that they maybe haven't felt for a very, very long time. And there's like a tension there. So from an, yeah, from that point of view, I just I want to do the so-called functional analysis of that. So there's this feeling. So as that feeling's there, so I might ask ask them what would happen, what would it feel like if they relaxed it? Or are you, is there something you don't want to feel there? If a, if a person seems stuck and you know they're asking for help or they're kind of or they're they're, they're not just opening up to the experience that's surfacing so kind of yeah or that kind of body psychotherapy style or from an act point of view and uh, asking why that what's the effect of that tension in your body when you tense where does that take where what's that like and if is is there something is there something there you don't want to feel and if so what is that i've um i've seen that during actually actual psychedelic ingestion phase of the, of the process, help people go again deep into that classic deeper stuff of there's something a bit wrong with me. So, so we know the importance of integration in helping people really make the most out of their experiences. I'm curious, Henry, um, what you've noticed about what's been most helpful for folks either in um, you know, follow-up sessions or observing people over time, either things that you've, that you, you offer as part of the retreat or things that you're noticing people kind of doing on their own. Um, you know, what, what, what is your sense of how, how can we help people integrate best, uh, these really powerful experiences so that there is, there is more long lasting change and benefit? Yeah. I think uh, ACT, contextual behavioral science, has a lot to offer on that as well. Because um, of course, a massive emphasis in ACT is what reinforces our behaviors or what punishes or prevents certain behaviors from happening. So um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of course, the values work looking at why you're doing what you're doing during the integration phase. But yeah, maybe if I back up a bit, where is a good place to start with this? Yeah, I could talk a little bit about what I often have witnessed during the integration phase. So um, I might start by saying that I see it very much like a temporary window during which the therapy can go deeper 
and faster and get more done. So it's not just about oh, how do we, we how do we maintain what's come up. Um, I see the psychedelic ceremony part as uh, a time which opens up new thresholds. So, for example, you know these memories that become you know I was me, 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 or the first example I mentioned of being able to feel even more of a, a and there's something wrong with me and there's something inadequate about me, being able to feel that more than ever before. So for a period usually of um, for at least, you know, usually very often as long as a month, I think very often longer than that actually, but usually at least a couple of weeks, maybe minimum a week on average perhaps. Um, a person can, um, I think it's, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had a background as a trauma therapist as well, using this approach called TIR, which is, yes, another, you know, uh, mind mindfulness kind of informed therapies that can very easily be adapted to be very act consistent. It's probably might naturally 95% act consistent and a couple of tweaks can be totally act consistent. Um, and so doing trauma work during that period is in the last cohort on the study, um, quite a lot of people went into doing trauma work. So the kind of stuff that's difficult to access because you know, it might have, uh, often people have even long-term experiences of, long-term childhood experiences of trauma where they may be, you know, even the average person might be slightly neglected during a, uh, uh, you know, a period of a few years. They weren't being horribly abused maybe, but maybe they just felt really unhappy about themselves for a few years in childhood and some, you know, memories of that surface to processing that stuff. Um, yeah, we had, um, you know, one, one of, another participant, uh, was able to face even long-term childhood uh, sexual abuse kind of stuff. And, and she said that without the psychedelic ceremony, she wouldn't have been able to do that. It was, just wasn't accessible. So continuing that immediately afterwards with, you know, kind of therapy that can respond to that, I think is very interesting. Because you know, without the psychedelic, it just would have taken a lot longer. And of course, when things take a very long time, very often they never get around to even doing it because it's a big undertaking. It takes lots of dedication, maybe. So this old adage that you can get um, years of therapy and a weekend of psychedelics. Um, on, I mean, on that point, I like to say maybe a, a year of insights, or but not a year of behavior change, of course. So that's another reason why of course, integration is so important because you need to continue to carry it, carry it forward. So yeah, so in a way, you can turbocharge the therapy to move through new thresholds that are maybe only temporarily available if you did nothing, or just all wear off and after two months, the person might feel fairly normal again. Um, then of course, yeah, being aware of um, what a person spontaneously will start doing things differently if they've gone deep and had new insights very often uh, they will yeah, naturally start doing things. So just acknowledging that, just an acknowledgement can be a good reinforcer. Uh, having a person um, journal, write down things that they do differently, being aware of why they're doing it differently. Um, then another thing that we've been trying out in the study is it's kind of influenced a bit, a bit by the kind of multi-level um, uh, a multi-level selection theory kind of influenced model if I well maybe I should explain what I mean by that but if you, in life of course we have different uh, domains of life we've got um, Francoise Bourzat in her book calls it 
she breaks life down into the domains of self-care and relationships and community and environment. And if you, if you uh, have a look at those, you'll notice that they're actually concentric, like yourself, looking after yourself, is kind of contained within the relationships or has an impact on the relationships, you know, your relationship with yourself. And of course, all relationships have an impact on the community and the community, you know, even connects to other forms of life. And But environment doesn't only mean, of course, the, the, the environment, the ecological environment also means because your immediate environment. So how do all these things interconnect? So I think, yeah, coming to the, another big question, I think in psychedelics is how do we sustain these big, people have, seem to have, they seem to have really large changes and they're also known to wear off because I think this, this isn't only related to psychedelics, any big peak experience. So people, it's the same, I think, if you go to a Vipassana retreat or any major big ex psychological experience to sustain it is difficult because um, the, the life that you return to pushes you back into your old patterns, your old ways. So I think it's important to look at behavior change systemically as well. So to sustain bigger changes, I think we need to get systemic. I mean, to think we need to have a functional awareness of, so when, if I go home and say, I'm a new person now to my girlfriend, how does she react? She frowns at me and grunts. That's already, that's a behavioral punishment for my new, be new behavior. So I might kind of retreat and think, oh, well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea then. Just a tiny subtle thing like that could have a real impact on the, the, the unfolding of the behavior change. Of course, communities or a person, I think we as people pretty much universally agree that community is important. So if you're part of communities that encourage you to grow and change, that makes a, a real difference. So finding ways to make your to, uh, things that continue to sustain your behaviors that you want to continue to sustain the life that you really want to live. Because uh, you know, if, if people are changing on a large scale, I mean, to, to a, a large degree, then it has a big, there's more, there are more kind of systemic barriers to interrupt that, I think, the bigger the change. So uh, looking at how you can have more harmony between self-care and um, relationships and community, how these can all support each other, like two-way streets, you know, I can do things for my community, my community can do things for me, I can do things for my relationship, my relationship could be supportive to me and my psychological growth. So, uh, and then practices that, of course, help sustain this kind of more self as process, self as context, self perspective taking, a kind of approach to life where I'm more present and I'm more aware of why I'm in what I'm doing. And I'm more aware of my old self stories, my inner child and my inner critic that's telling me that I'm no good. You know, if there are practices um, in place to continually help with those things, that's it's much more likely you're going to have really long-lasting change. Yeah, and um, I kind of wanted to, to follow up a little bit more with uh, it's absolutely true. You know, you have this experience, and then you know you plug back into life. You know, you walk back into your life the next day or the next week or whenever, and nothing else has changed. Everything else is the same, um, basically. You know, and it seems like that's a a particular vulnerability with a model of, of doing retreats, you know, you go out and you go for a week and you go to do something completely different, like a good vacation or whatever, maybe it's like a really wicked, deep, <laughs> pretty like real interesting vacation, but still, you know, and, and we've all been on vacations and come back with the Monday blues and you see your life is just the same and <laughs> nothing's different. 
Um, and you know, that, that dynamic still seems to be very much there when you're talking about a psychedelic retreat and very much needs to be overcome and, and, and to build those bridges from these incredible insights and, um, experiences of yourself in a different way to, okay, well, what am I going to do different? So is that something you explicitly talk about? Here's the behavior changes to do. Um, when you get back. So I guess I have a couple questions here. One is that, how do you explicitly do that? And the other piece is how do participants in the retreat support each other with that process? We haven't gotten into this as, as well. And maybe you want to, I'm, I'm smushing two questions into one here, but um, you know, how do the participants interact with each other and do, do they trip together? And, and, yeah, and how, how, what is the social aspect of the retreat yeah, tell me a little bit about the social. I know I smushed two questions together here, but I'm curious about the social aspects of the treat and also just how you explicitly um, help build those bridges um, from your retreat into day-to-day life, which, you know, you plug back into nothing's different. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll try and remember all your questions. Let me know if I forget one of them. First, I think your first question was about being explicit about behavior change. Um, I like to think of it as, a two-pronged approach in that there's like awareness practices in a way you want to integrate the, of course, insights still come. It's not like you're, you get your download in 10 minutes at the end of the ceremony and that's it. It's this unfolding process. And yes, I know some people in plant medicine worlds can think, oh, we don't want to, well, rightly, they, they don't want to, we don't want to just like interrupt that and get two in our heads straight away. This whole head heart or being in the head, being in, in the heart, uh, dichotomy, it's useful to track that so we can have practices for both. I do think the head can serve the heart. Another thing that I love, that I learned from the ACT world, I don't know if it's originally from Steve Hayes, um, this, this a division of experience up into head, hands, and heart. So it's not all heart. It's, there is the head can serve the heart. You know, when we, we, which is the thing we do in ACT, of course, if I think I can use my head to bookmark what's really important to me, and that's still the head, and I'm putting into words, thinking about it, you know, I can then see what my, see if my heart kind of agrees with what my head says and, and the feeling that I have. And then there's the hands, which are skills too. There's like practices and habits that are actual skills that we can develop that can continue that process. So, um, so if we think of it, if I, if we narrow it down to just a two-pronged approach, there's like, you know, meditating, awareness practices, journaling, continuing to journal, continuing, continuing to just feel what's coming up for me after having had this uh, psychedelic retreat experience and just allowing that to continue to unfold. So that's one of the prongs. And then the other prong is, um, how do I translate this into the life that I want to live? Which is, you know, what I was already touching on with this kind of multi-level of a, approach where I can think, yeah, we can divide up into, so what can I, can I look after myself better? Can I be different in my relationships? You know, I've realized that I was being mean to my girlfriend or whoever, and I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm, I'm going to have a conversation with her and say, I'm sorry. Or, um, so it went, and of course, as soon as we change things kind of a more relational systemic level, then that's, it's harder to go back on that. So another uh, in the behavior change part, another uh, thing I've been thinking about that I like a lot is um, uh, how um, our behaviors change our environment. So if we, ch- we change the context, then the new context reinforces the change as well. So we want to build new contexts, new experiences in life. 
So um, that's kind of how I see that. And uh, so, yeah, just being continually being aware of that. And some of the, one of the simplest things people have said in the follow-up interviews, you know, because we're doing lots of qualitative interviews for the participants. One of the simplest, people have said, you know, lots of really interesting things. One of the simplest things was simply good old accountability. It's just not the magical process or anything. Just knowing that they have a, an integration session every week and someone's going to ask you how you're doing. <laughs> just that makes them think, oh yeah, so I'm not, I won't, it's, they're less likely to forget about. So just something as simple as that makes a difference, I believe. Um, of course, there's, there's more kind of impressive things that are surfacing out of the interviews, I like to think in terms of well, things that sound more, you know, like new kinds of therapy, but there's also, you know, very simple things like that. Um, so yeah, and then your other question, I think, was about the social aspect of it. Yeah, because you know, that fits, of course, with this community piece. It's very much a community um, experience. And the thing that I found quite striking is even retreats that we did like two years ago, you know, you ha we have a WhatsApp group for all the people on one individual retreat. Um, I've been uh, really um, pleased to see that even two years later, people still talk to each other. It's such a bonding experience. And we encourage people to have regular meetups afterwards too. So we have, you know, we do, um, we have kind of a group Zoom meeting, a group Zoom meeting afterwards anyway, but then we encourage somebody to take the lead on that. Say so if this is your little community now, so if you would like to organize meetings once a month or whenever you feel like it, then we'd like to really encourage you to do that, to keep that sense of some, you know, as little psychedelic community, psychedelic personal growth community, um, and people often, I think people who've met each other on these retreats you know, can end up working together and doing projects together and things like that. So yeah, I think um, community is important. Did I answer all your questions? I don't know, I might have missed one. <laughs> no, I think, I think you got it. I think you got it. Um, imagine that, Brian, working together on projects ongoing after a psychedelic retreat. <laughs> Imagine that. That's a um, wonderful um, overview of what you do. Um, uh, and did you have any final questions, Brian? I know that we're probably approaching our time. Um, no, I don't think so. I want to thank you, Henry, for coming today and sharing with us about your, your wonderful work and really excited to see the, the paper that you're submitting and uh, to, for, for you to share about um, this psychedelic retreat model that uh, you've been using, and uh, we'll we'll post some information for our audience if they if they want to look into that and, and find some more information. Great. Okay. Well, it was fun to chat with you guys. It's always nice to talk to fellow enthusiasts. I believe you are. So thank you. Mm -hmm.